Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Hankus Netsky. Hankus is chair of New England Conservatory's Contemporary Improvisation Department and founder and director of the Klezmer Conservatory Band, an internationally renowned Yiddish music ensemble. He has composed extensively for film, theater, and television, and collaborated, performed, and recorded with many well-known artists, including Itzhak Perlman and Theodore Bakel. Hankus is the author of the recently published Klezmer, Music and Community in 20th Century Philadelphia. He's also worked with the Yiddish Book Center over the past 36 years in the areas of education, oral history, and recently he curated the Yiddish Book Center's Lee and Alfred Hutt Discovery Gallery. Welcome, Hankus. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us, and uh, I was hoping you would share a little bit about your new book. Absolutely. What it is is an ethnography of the Jewish wedding scene in Philadelphia, uh, covering a period of about 100 years. And the purpose of the book is really to show that one can look at the history of a city through that lens, through the the lens of Jewish wedding musicians. Uh, usually books look at Jewish communities um, as a history of synagogues, a uh, history of rabbis, a uh, history of uh, philanthropy, um, and Jewish wedding music was pretty much entirely uh, neglected, uh, to the point where when I started doing my research in the uh, 1970s on Jewish wedding music, Pretty much no archive had any. <laughs> so you, you, you couldn't find it. It wasn't even a category. It was sort of like um, Klezmorum, uh, that didn't matter. Um, Jewish folk song, yes, you could find that. You could find something about Yiddish theater, although no books on it uh, at that point. Um, but um, really, the whole Klezmer thing was completely uh, taken for granted as something that was inconsequential. It's just, oh, you go to a wedding, they're playing music, yeah, uh, so what? Uh, and uh, um, the thing that it, you know became very interesting is that the revival of Jewish culture that ensued in the 1980s really revolved around Jewish wedding music. So it was kind of a, a complete shock to everyone. I mean, there was no one in academia who would have foreseen that. Uh, no one really in the Jewish community was thinking that that could possibly happen. Um, the only people who had some idea about it were musicians who, once they uncovered those hidden gems of uh, not only written music, but really recordings by people like Naftali Brenwine and Dave Tarras, they just scratched their heads and said, how could the Jews possibly just forget about this? How could this have been buried? How could this have just been forgotten? And so uh, what I did is I looked at my own family, and five of my family members, um, including my grandfather and five uncle, four uncles, were uh, Jewish wedding musicians in Philadelphia. So I started asking them questions. They led me to other musicians, and pretty soon I realized that I had opened up quite a... Uh, well, I sort of think of it as like almost like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something, <laughs> uncovering this tremendous tradition uh, that uh, really reflected a lot about how the community 
how you know really what happened in the 20th century in that community all reflected through what these musicians played right and and you you choose to focus on Philadelphia i know you have roots there and it's a unique story and i wonder if or it's a unique approach to looking at what the culture of the Yiddish community was. I wonder if there are other cities across the country which would have similar stories, and just how does this inform the larger sort of Jewish narrative? Philadelphia was really an interesting one to look at because, you know, still to this day, Philadelphia is the fifth largest city in the country. Uh, At that time, uh, when I started, uh, it was probably the fourth largest city in the country. I think Phoenix passed it around 1981. Um, so, um, but it's a place where immigrants gathered from all kinds of towns in Europe and really formed one community. And I say that because New York is much more complicated and actually not in any way nearly as unified in terms of what the musicians formed. Then when you get to places like Chicago, it's just it just never was enough of a uh, of a real community uh from that point of view of of really bringing the immigrant culture um in to uh to be as interesting in a way. And Los Angeles also much later and much uh, uh you know very very different. Philadelphia you have Jews arriving uh, with these uh, wedding, you know, these klezmorum arriving with, with tremendous repertoires from Europe in, as early as the 1860s. And uh, it really does make for a unique story, actually. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's something that Philadelphians, of course, were not aware of, <laughs> because they tend to be very modest about their own, uh, their own city. But it was fascinating to me, especially as, um, a way of looking at how immigrant culture, how, you know, how immigrants coming from all over Eastern Europe, when they came to a big city, and it, indeed it could have been Odessa, it could have been Kiev, it could have been possibly uh, even Prague, um, but a big city in the United States, um, which of course did not have to go through the the torture of of of, of, of the Holocaust. Um, would be a place where where you could really uh, see an uninterrupted history, and it became like the ingathering of the musical exiles. You know, it's like it's like uh, you you take one piece like Philadelphia Russian share, and the beginning you get a trace of Minsk, and then you go from Minsk to uh, Romania, and then you go to Kiev. <laughs> you know, and it's like a trip through Eastern Europe in twenty minutes. So it's 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 really fascinating from a musical point of view. But isn't that I mean I think that's true of a lot of aspects of um Jewish Yiddish culture. Um Klezmer borrows from and adapts and evolves and um from place, from where it is and what's happening um around it. And I wonder again if this is reflected in the music unique to Philadelphia. I mean you mentioned these other cities do they all have something that is influenced by place as they evolve the, the music? The, the unique thing about Philadelphia was that the musicians were a brotherhood that basically crafted something that became standard 
and unique. So they weren't even aware of it unless they went to play. If a Philadelphia musician went to play in New York, they'd be lost. And, and there were so many stories about that. They'd go up to play and, you know, someone would call tunes and they'd play all the wrong ones, you know, <laughs> because, because they knew the Philadelphia repertoire. But New York never actually crafted a uh, totally specific repertoire that everybody had to know. Now, in, in New York, it would be more the influence of a guy like Dave Tarras, who was a major, major figure, made lots of recordings. Um, Naftali Brandwine made lots of recordings, so musicians would know their tunes. Philadelphia was very different. Philadelphia, the standard repertoire was literally like hammered out so that, um, you know, musicians would tell me that, for example, Russian Cher, it's a long dance, it's at least 20 minutes. Um, it was almost a hazing process. When a new musician wanted to uh, play on the gig, you'd call that and just see like when they started crumbling because they couldn't possibly know 20 <laughs> minutes worth of. You know, and you had to know a very specific order, and you had to know um, you know how to have it all memorized, and and it was really a, a a standard thing that they cobbled together from you know between all these musicians. Whereas if you were in New York, for example, um, and you played something like that. Anyone could lead it anywhere, pretty much. After the first five minutes, it would just go wherever the person wanted it to. There wasn't really a standard, standard way to do it. Um, and Philadelphia took it much more seriously. So it wasn't improvisational at all? It didn't tend to be uh, as, as, as casual. It, was really, it really was a specific thing that you needed to know. And I actually think, in fact, because of the enormity of it, the musicians is, is, is why it faded out. I mean, I think that if I was a kid and it was easy to go play a Jewish wedding, I would have played Jewish weddings with my, with my uncles. But I think they were very aware that if you were going to play a Jewish wedding, you had to know hundreds of very specific things <laughs> that, that you, you, you really might not have a clue about. You know, these guys, these guys were, it, 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 seriously, it was like a musical fraternity, you know, it was like they had all these mm -hmm. secrets, you know, that they, uh, that, that only they knew. And I do remember, it's, it, you know, I do remember uh, going to Klez Camp the very first time, um, uh, which was the, uh, 1985, uh, the first of these week-long um, festivals where all the musicians who were active in the Klezmer Revival would gather and I just remember the very first night taking out my saxophone, sitting on the bandstand with these guys uh, who all were from New York. And I didn't know a thing that they played. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. It was like I knew all the wrong stuff. <laughs> well, what did they think about what you played? Oh, they didn't. They, they couldn't care less. They were New Yorkers. <laughs> um, it really didn't matter. Actually, later on in 2000, we actually hosted Klez Camp in Philadelphia. And that was really a shock for them. I mean, they, they were playing completely unfamiliar things. It was, I mean, we had the top New York musicians, and they had, to, they had to play a mock Philadelphia Jewish wedding. And until that time, uh, when I started doing my research, there was no consciousness about the fact that klezmer repertoires in different cities in America were completely different. Um, Milwaukee had a unique repertoire. That's, that's another one. I mean, we went to Milwaukee and people suddenly were teaching me tunes because they, the musicians from Milwaukee, the musicians that came to Milwaukee came from Riga, Latvia. And 
there's almost no other musicians from Riga, Latvia that came to the United States. They all went to Milwaukee for some reason. So it's very, very, very interesting. It was very interesting to kind of uh, find out that um, there were these unique repertoires. It wasn't just klezmer. You know, there was Philadelphia klezmer. There was New York klezmer. There was Milwaukee klezmer. <laughs> there undoubtedly was Detroit klezmer and Chicago klezmer, but people didn't do any research on it. So we Did, don't know. Were you surprised by all of these variants when you set out on this? Well, I'll tell you what really happened was that my uncles um, started, you know, when I first started um, working on the music, which is about 1974, 75, um, my uncles said to me, here's, here's the tunes, here are the tunes, you have to learn these tunes, and they would give me these books, and I'd look at the tunes, and then I'd listen to the recordings of people like Taris and Brandwein, and I'd say, these tunes aren't these aren't the tunes everybody's supposed to learn. The tunes everyone's supposed to learn are these tunes that these great players, you know, we were interested in that. And then about 10 years later, I started looking at the books again, and I said, wait a minute. These aren't the tunes these guys played. What is going on here? And then I realized that, in fact, I needed to learn the Philadelphia tunes because that was something that no one else knew. Um, except for very old musicians in Philadelphia. So um, it, was, it was quite a process. And gradually now those Philadelphia tunes have gotten into the repertoire. And in fact, just a couple months ago for one of my uh, book signing activities, down, I, I went down to Philadelphia and uh, played a gig with four or five musicians um, from Philadelphia, um, a, a band with nine musicians in a total, including one of the older Philadelphia musicians, um, and it was really a lot of fun to do it because it was sort of like reintroducing the uh, you know the native material you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and people responded to it. I mean, people got up and danced, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I remember this," you know. <laughs> and did it lose? So it's fun. Did it lose its audience? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Did, um, when did it lose its audience? It sounds like it did. Oh, definitely, it lost its audience as early as the 1950s. I mean. Um, it lost its audiences. You know, what, what the musicians told me was that, um, you know, when through the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, the immigrant parents were in charge of the weddings. Mm-hmm. So the parents basically picked the band. They usually picked a band that came from their hometown. And therefore, if you were having a wedding in Philadelphia, you were not having a wedding in Philadelphia. You were having a wedding in Krivozer or Buslov mm-hmm. or Tolchin. You were really having a wedding in the old country um, with the musicians who, who, who could play the music that was the right music for your town. And eventually, uh, the, these things kind of became a conglomerate of Philadelphia music, which had a little bit of all of them. So that was okay, too. But... By the 1940s, the brides had taken over, and an American-born woman like, say, my mother (laughs) was not going to just let her father play whatever he wanted at her wedding. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she she wanted American music. She didn't want any Jewish music. Um, she she would have wanted you know what Frank Sinatra was singing and what uh, the big bands were playing. So. It really became a, a, a big struggle. The musicians knew all this music, but they really uh, weren't allowed to play it very much. And they, they tried to slip it in as much as they could. Um, it became much more common for them only to play it more for Lanzmannschaft, for, you know, the 
organizations that had come from specific towns that would have a party once a year, and then they, they would want it to sound like the old country, or B'nai B'rith lodges, or very specifically Jewish um, ethnic kinds of gatherings. And really, the, the, eth- the ethnic side of Jewish culture uh, was really a victim of a lot of, you know, a lot of things um, in in everywhere in the United States. Of course, I mean, it was it was a victim of assimilation, uh, where you know Judaism was a religion. You had to just make it a religion, and you kept the ethnicity to yourself. Um, it was a big victim of, of course, uh, Jewish education too, because Jewish education was about Israel at that point. And it was about the Holocaust destroyed Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is over. Eastern Europe is gone. And not only that, but even before that, people like Theodore Herzl um, were very anti-ethnic. Solomon Schechter was very anti-ethnic. They wanted to get rid of every trace of Jewish ethnicity and simply create a very American and Israel-centered kind of education that had no traces of things like Jewish wedding music in it. So, I mean, it's very, it's very complicated, actually. I mean, in my research, I really found that out, that uh, you can't just say the Holocaust and assimilation. You really can't, and, 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 and that Zionism was, you know, kind of the only alternative. You really have to look at the fact that um, those who were perpetuating Jewish education made a concentrated effort to eradicate every possible trace of Jewish ethnic culture. So when people had weddings, mm-hmm. they played Israeli music. Mm-hmm. You, you interviewed a lot of musicians um, for the book, and I'm wondering if there's just one story that stands out um, as sort of central to telling this or representative of what you're describing. Well, I mean, to me, you know, the most fun, I have to say, of all the, uh, all the people uh, was a guy named Jules Helsner, who I introduced, uh, who I really interviewed at the very end. Um, and he died only a few years ago at the age of 97 or 98, I believe. <laughs> because he was a character who was there in Philadelphia the whole time. I mean, came in as a, as a young kid, you know, and uh, he, he would, he would, play vaudeville songs on the street with a comb and tissue paper, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just to earn a little bit, of, little bit of money, and eventually became the most successful of the Jewish wedding musicians, um, bar none. I mean, he just was, you know, the, he was such a, such, a, such a great musician, and he played the clarinet better than anyone there, and eventually, though, he was doing mostly rock and roll and, and of course, Israeli songs. And it was very interesting to see someone who actually had the whole pattern down in his lifetime, that when he came in, he was playing with the immigrant band leaders. And the immigrant band leaders, you know, you just, you couldn't even, they wouldn't even tell you what they'd pay you, you know, and you didn't even know whether you'd actually get paid at the end of the gig sometimes. So eventually he just became independent, and he didn't want to deal with that crowd. He wanted to deal with a crowd that was American and did business in a very normal, organized way. But, you know, so I I have recordings of him doing everything from, from playing like these old klezmer dance tunes to playing um, Honky Tonk Woman at a party in the 1970s, um, you know, with this 
wonderful, wonderful Yiddish singer singing Honky Tonk Woman. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and, and describing the event, you know, that this, this was like for this like multimillionaire who, who had the, the swimming pool, um, basically the monopoly on swimming pools in Philadelphia, the Sylvan Pools, and everybody was completely stoned, you know. And, I mean, it was just so interesting that, you know, this guy came in at a time when it was all Yiddish-speaking immigrants. He could play the entire Russian chair. That was no problem for him, but nobody wanted it. You know, so it was really this the the way that the music followed the assimilation um, so beautifully, and yet you know the nice the great thing about this was any time I would call one of these old musicians, they were so eager to talk about the old days uh, because they missed them, right. they missed them so much, and they knew this was important. They 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 had this feeling that what they did was important. It was it was a whole body of music that basically had disappeared, and they also knew that I had personally had a role in bringing it back. I mean, I also remember that in the 1970s, I would call these guys and they would hang up on me <laughs> because they would just go, that's all dead, that's all gone, forget about it. And they were sad and they were bitter and they were angry somewhat about that. And they'd be like, what do you want to talk about that for? No, no, no. And, and I, I, uh, I get that bitterness. Now, nowadays, by the way, you get that from cantors sometimes because cantors uh, have been really marginalized in a huge way. And they won't even talk about it, you know, in some cases. And that's what I find. I mean, I, since I do interviews for the, uh, the Center Oral History Project, um, you, you know, you occasionally find people who are so bitter that they really won't even talk about it. And that's, that's, I think that's really happened in cantorial music now. But I think that um, for the Klezmers, back then, they, they were angry. And uh, I remember bringing one of these guys who had not talked to me before to hear my band play with Itzhak Perlman at the Mann Center with like 10,000 people there, which is a big outdoor space in Philadelphia. And I, I got him tickets to the concert. I also got tickets for several other band leaders. They came to this concert. They see 10,000 people listening to klezmer music. And somehow, all of a sudden, they want to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, so it was very, very interesting. I mean, they were not, you know, aware of the revival unless you literally took them and put them in the middle of it. And I mean, it must be heartening um, for them to see this. And a lot of them went on to have careers like dentists and, and, you know, professions, correct? And then are they reflecting on the life before that? Well, I mean, you know, musicians often had other careers. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the ones, I mean, I talked to ones who were only musicians also. I talked to people who basically had gigs every day working for, you know, playing lunchtime at the uh, electric, for the electric company or something. I mean, <laughs> you know, live music was, was very different. I mean, my interviews go back so far that, you know, some of these musicians, when I first started interviewing them, they could remember, they said, the music business died in 1927 when the talking pictures came in, right? Because <laughs> before that time, Every movie theater had an orchestra, <laughs> and they all played. So, so that was the end of it. And then you get the ones that go, you know, well, the music business died in the 1960s when the DJs came in. You know, uh, so, so, you know, they, they, were, they were basically, um, in some cases, they had completely earned a living playing music until then. Mm -hmm. um, it was much harder to find younger musicians who, in fact, were still completely earning a living as musicians, but 
uh, without teaching or anything like that. But 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 I found them, and I still know them. I mean, I uh, the the older musician Bobby Block, who played with us uh, a few weeks ago in Philadelphia, he's never done anything but music. And what do you see for the twenty first century? Well, what I see really is that you know people people act as if. Uh, in some cases, okay, you know, I remember we first came out there, oh, that'll be a fad for a few years. And I'm like, no, actually, it's going to be way beyond that because these are actually people's roots. And it's not a fad. It's not popular because it's a fad. It's popular because it's people's roots. And it's where you come from. So it's not just a fad. And then it went on and went on and went on and it evolved. And then people talk about, oh, the post-Klezmer time because people just take Klezmer and they use it for hip-hop and they use... I, I don't buy any of that, basically. Um, I actually think we're on the cusp of a very major uh, revival of Jewish ethnic culture. Um, and I see it I see it in, the, in cooking, you know. I mean, right. the Book Center, when it first started, was really just about books, and now it's really about, you know, about Jewish culture of all types. And you have, you know, these wonderful tent programs that can go in all kinds of directions. And I really see that younger people, you know, they'll say, I just wish that I had talked to my grandparents and my great-grandparents when I still could have learned about this culture. And I have to tell you that, you know, I was just in Los Angeles playing a memorial event for Theo Bikel, who I worked with for many years, um, and he died when he was 92, about a year mm -hmm. ago. And the next day, um, I went out to Hollywood to interview an older woman who was a cousin of someone I had collected music from who died not that long ago. Um, and I collected songs for two hours, folk songs, Jewish folk songs, I, Yiddish folk songs I'd never heard before. I know they're not documented anywhere. These people are there. They're still in the community. This is a living culture. Um, the priority now really needs to be in education, connecting the young with the old, connecting the young with their real culture, um, and they're starving for it. Yeah. And this is, uh, I believe, going to be bigger and bigger, because 95% of Jews in America come from Eastern European ethnic background, and they've been fed a steady diet of things that, in many cases, have very, very little to do with that background. And a lot of them basically either just drop out of Hebrew school, or... Um, or, or, or continue along until they decide, okay, that's not very interesting. Um, but I think they're really, really hungry for it. So I think that really um, we're in a position that they um, will really want more and more of this. And what we really need to do is make it available for education. Because I was just talking to a kid who teaches at a Jewish day school in California when I was out there also, and he said, you know, Theo's legacy is amazing. It's all this wonderful Yiddish music and all this fantastic stuff. But I have no access to that. Mm. I don't know how to get that. How could I use that in my teaching? Wow. And that's what we really, really need in a big way. So, I mean, I really hope to spend my time uh, trying to make that possible. Well, that's, yeah, one of the, the um, things we're doing here with Great Jewish Books Teacher Workshop is making these um, resources available to incorporate it in the classroom, and it's really exciting. It's a you know outgrowth of our Great Jewish Books Summer Program, 
And yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, the book, the book center has been about books, and and that's that, that's wonderful. And again, there's a living culture. Also, mm-hmm. the books write about the living culture. Well, the living culture is still out there. It's very very vibrant, um, and in in communities that that um, that still speak Yiddish. I mean, I see it in Borough Park. I see it in you know in Hollywood. I see it in these these you know these kind of kind of um, more secluded Jewish communities, but. Also, it's very, it, it's, you know, it's been available to us. It's been available to people who really, really um, work hard to, you know, learn Yiddish, to find um, a way to somehow can figure out what this sheet music is, right? I mean, there's thousands of pieces of sheet music there at the book center mm-hmm. with no translation, um, there are books on music, the Yiddish books on, you know, the, the biographies of musicians. They don't have any translations. Um, so, you know, how do young people possibly get access to any information about this music? Um, and that's really something that is a huge thing for us to work on. Right, and I think, you know, it's safe to say, Hankus, that you've, you've championed this for so, so long. And that imprint's here at the center in terms of, the Discovery Gallery, in terms of the oral histories, in terms of education, and it's yeah, it's really exciting. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to do in the book so center. Much. I'm sure will be right right in the right well, in the forefront. And, of and it. everybody else. I mean, and that's what's so exciting around the globe. People are just doing really creative things with theater, with music, um, with cooking as well. It's just there. There's stuff everywhere you look when you begin to um, sort of go after it and, and see that it's out there. I mean, I think there is. I think that's really true. I think that the literacy level, um, and this is something that Sam Cassow has talked about a lot, the question of the actual literacy level is, is, is really a big question because, I mean, I can tell you that when I started, you know, playing and getting, attracting huge audiences to see my band in 1980, I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I knew like, you know, I knew the 10 Yiddish songs we were playing with, you know, the 10 klezmer tunes that we were playing. And I had basically kind of scraped that together as a repertoire. But honestly, um, what was my literacy level? Well, I mean, with almost none, <laughs> you know, I could go play on Prairie Home Companion for tens of thousands of people all over the country, <laughs> you know. But, but I mean, that's not really enough, you know. We really need to get a literacy about this and really get it into education. All we have are one-week little workshops, and it's, it's, it's just a huge amount of uh, material that there is almost no access to. And uh, and I really think that that's the goal at the moment. I mean, that's that's the you know the, the, it, it, we already we already know that if something is good and relates to Eastern Europe, it can go on stage and it will be supported. And in fact, in some cases, if it's not so good, it can also go on stage and attract an audience. We know all that, but the question of like how how do we give young people who come from this tradition access to the musical culture of their grandparents and great-grandparents, you know, that's not a question for Irish people or Armenians or Greeks. You know, they just do it. We have a much more complicated uh, process to go through because, because it had been, you know, basically um, shelved for so long. So we, we really have a lot of work to do on that. Well, for all the work you've done to date, thank you. 
Um, oh, thanks. Really, really, really. Um, I know I've gotten a lot of education from you, Hengus, and I appreciate that. Um, I speak for others. Um, so thanks for joining us today. Your book, Klezmer, Music and Community in the 20th Century, is available in our bookstore, YiddishBookCenter.org, and we look forward to welcoming you back for Yidstock. Um, you're going to be presenting a talk on Klezmer in Jewish Philadelphia on Friday the 15th, and the Klezmer Conservatory Band kicks off Yidstock on Thursday, July 14th. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's always a Thank pleasure. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, okay bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.